Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Ages Podcast. I'm David Harry Stewart. Welcome to the show. Today we're speaking with the extraordinary Alex Von Bitter, one of the nicest, most intriguing people I've recently met. Over the last 40 years, Alex ran a little restaurant, you may have heard of it, the Four Seasons in Manhattan. It was the scene of the ultimate power lunch. Now, Alex is a very complex, very interesting guy. He's an accomplished yogi, and you got to check out the Aegis site to see some of the uh, the images. He's It's really extraordinary. And he's also very involved with the idea of purpose in our lives. And one might think that that's sort of the opposite of tending to the whims of the eating habits of the masters of the universe. But for him, he really couldn't do one without the other. So let's give Alex a call and see what he's got to say. Hi, Alex. How are you today? Hi, David. I'm very well. Merry Christmas to you. Oh, thank you so much. Same to you. Where Where are you today? Thank you. I'm in New York. I'm at home. Oh. Uh, first time uh, not in the restaurant and first time uh, without relatives. So it's a very quiet day for my wife and I. As in first time ever? No, no. First time in my working life. Ah, so working yeah. and. You, you had the, the restaurant for, what, like 40 years, right? Over 40 years. It was uh, 42, 43 years, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. That's so amazing. Um, and Yes, we work when others play. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. I can't imagine how difficult that job must have been. Um, I mean, I've, I'm thinking about... Uh, you know, the, the various personalities that you served there. And, um, uh, you know, what, what was it like dealing with that sort of clientele? It was exciting. It was exciting, and you never knew what would, would happen. And uh, one of my ways of dealing with uh, the stress of that was to assume that by lunchtime we would have three emergencies. And they may be very simple that my boss forgot his coat at home and I had to send somebody for it, or there was a kitchen fire, anything in between. But my mind uh, was prepared for it, and I would just count off the emergencies. And if I got to lunchtime without any, that was just great. I was just ready. Wow, happy day. <laughs> mm-hmm. And. Who, so who came to the restaurant? What, like, what sort of people ate in there? Well, everybody, really. Uh, there's a great misconception that it was just uh, a place for powerful people. And that is true uh, for lunch in the grill room. But we also had a very large pool room and we had private dining rooms. So we served a lot of people all day long and that could be somebody just coming for, to the bar uh, we had steady bar clientele uh, the powerful and the mighty in the grill room for lunch but for dinner they would go somewhere else and families for thanksgiving feasts or for christmas eve um, people for of all all walks of life and very international and still the majority of people were from the three um, zip codes uh, on the upper east side. And, and so how, very local. Oh, and how did you, so there was a limited amount of tables in that grill room. And mm-hmm. say, how, how did you allocate them? So I'm, you know, say I'm somebody, um, you know, I'm, I'm Bob the billionaire, I've come up to the door and I say, Alex, I would like that corner table right now. What happens? <laughs> I, would say, <laughs> I would say, good afternoon. Uh, happy to have you, but unfortunately, that table has been occupied uh, for the last 40 years by the same individual. So unfortunately, it's not available now. If you come back for dinner or you come on a Saturday, I'm happy to accommodate you. And, uh, how did you allocate these tables? Uh, strictly by seniority and seniority uh, as defined by um, long-standing support of the restaurant. Since the restaurant was built in 1959, um, we had many, many regular customers and 
So the ones who were the the oldest by definition or the longest supporters, uh, they had their tables. And unfortunately, others had to wait their turn. But the I... oldest customer or the longest standing res, uh, customer was our architect, Philip Johnson. Oh, of course. And, uh, right. He would sit at that table when nobody else was sitting in the room. So I couldn't possibly displace him. Right. But I, I understand there was a, a, a singular exception, um, Jackie Onassis. Uh, and it, t- tell me the Jackie story. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, you know, sometimes we make mistakes or, or other people make mistakes. And uh, generally, we assumed we made the mistake. It's much easier to deal with. And uh, um, Jackie O walked in at 1.15 one day, and all the tables were occupied in the grill room. And oh. so we, we brought in a small little square table and put it at the bottom of the stairs by the window. And we pretended it was always there. And there was a hush over the crowd as she walked in with me. And she sat and she had a good time. And from then on, everybody wanted to sit at that table. So we left it in. But obviously, we couldn't do this for for uh, other individuals walking in. But somehow, we always managed somewhere, somehow, maybe a little late. Maybe not exactly where they want it to be, but that's the challenge and that's the puzzle of a restaurant. And uh, it's much easier to deal with that than an empty restaurant. Oh my gosh, right? Those, these are the problems mm-hmm. you want to have. And, and of course, I, I, I guess having Jackie O come in the door and cause you a problem is something everyone would dream of that problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I... That's one of the words I never want to hear in a restaurant, that something is a problem. Right. Uh, it usually is a challenge, or it is something that we can figure out. But a problem, no. Definitely not a problem. Now, I, now I heard this story, and I, I, I don't know if it's true, but I, I recall something about um, a certain gentleman sent you a package of cash um, to get <laughs> someone into the restaurant. He bribed you. He wanted to bribe you. Um, yes. Amazing. <laughs> what? Tell us about that. Well, no, it's not amazing. This was the old-fashioned European way that you palm uh, the head waiter or the maitre d or the manager or the owner. You palm them uh, a bill sufficient enough to move the world for them. And uh, we always had the idea that uh, in this country everything should be dem- democratic and uh, everybody should be able to get a table as long as they booked in advance. So we never accepted cash um, or a bribery, as it were. Um, cash on the way in is really frowned upon by somebody with a, a good upbringing. So there was this uh, powerful Hollywood agent that was introduced to me by an art dealer. And uh, he asked me to look after him. And I said, of course, we'll look after him. And uh, then that very same day, an envelope arrived via Federal Express with $5,000 in cash uh, to make sure that I would take care of him. And uh, I didn't really know what to do other than send it back. But it was all old bills. And I didn't want to do that either because I knew of the Japanese custom that if you give somebody cash, you always give them cash in brand new crisp bills. So I went to the bank and changed the bills and sent it back to him. And he did become a good customer, but he had to learn that he had to give us some notice and that no, not every table was his. And we certainly would not deny somebody else because he wanted to buy his way in. What, What year was this? We're talking 80s. 80s were uh, the time of of, uh, um, big egos, big money, and being very public with money and uh, having bragging rights to whatever the best restaurant of the century of the months was. (laughs) We were lucky to last a little more than, than a month, 
we lasted a long time, but I think that had something to do with it. I, we, I like, uh, I like how this gentleman, he, he, he essentially set the price on the table. Um, so that uh, like $5,000 in whatever, 1983 was the, uh, you turned it down, but. Um, that was a lot of money. <laughs> a lot, I was gonna say, it was a lot of money back then, yeah. That was a lot of money. Even today for a table, that's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it goes beyond the palming, right? Like you can't really palm $5,000 in no. $100 bills, right? No. That's not, you, I think you need two palms for that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the double palm bribe, yes. Right. <laughs> um, which leads me to, I, I mean, we were talking earlier and you told me something about um, the way people were, uh, were built. Um, so they, they would just get a bill at the end of the month. Is that right? Yes. Part of, part of our service was to have a uh, house accounts and uh, we carried, I think about 1500 house accounts in, wow. in our heyday. Uh, it meant that there was a lot of entertainment going on by publishers at the time and by media in general. There was lots of money in book publishing those days. And, uh, so the, the heads of the publishing company or the editors in chief, they would have house accounts and we would just have a monthly bill so that you wouldn't have the the bill at the table. And it's just like a private club. You You walk in, you have lunch or dinner and you walk out and everybody knows that um, Mr. or Miss X has a house account and doesn't have to sign a check or doesn't have to do anything about it. And uh, actually there was an, an advertising executive who once told me, don't ever show me the bill, just have it sent to my house account. Because if I found out how expensive this is, I would never eat here. <laughs> but I, I, I love how that, it, <laughs> it, it's somehow very like almost Japanese to me, the way it, it's not mm -hmm. only have we circumvented the cash, we've circumvented the, the credit card and the whole like, oh no, I'll pay, no, I'll pay, or I'm, I'm more important, so I'll, you know, that whole thing. It just doesn't happen, right? Yes, exactly. It makes it also very easy. And it makes it easy to become your restaurant when you're that well known that you don't even have to ask for a check. Right. And it's very convenient. Wow, I love that. I wish I had a business like that. That's really great. <laughs> well, there is a downside. I have to tell you the downside. Um, there are many very rich people that don't like to pay their bills. Oh, yes, so of course. It becomes very awkward. Yes. There was, there was a chairman of one of the largest banks in the world that I always had to call personally to please pay his bills. <laughs> and he just did it out of principle. He let right. me wait. It's not that he didn't have the money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I, one of the things I've noticed about the restaurant business is that um, it's this, it's almost like this ultimate team act. It's kind of like an army, right? So like you've got just a lot of people involved and they all have to be focused on this one task and when it, and when it happens, when the lunch service begins, it's, it's game on, you know, you gotta, everybody's gotta go. How do you get everybody on the same team? And it, like, it seems like you're the general there. Well, the one thing that helps is if you take care of your employees, uh, they stay a long time. Our business is known for its very high um, employment, um, rotation or, or, or how do you say that? Uh, they change jobs all the time. In our case, that was not so. Um, I had waiters and bartenders and cooks and porters that stayed a long time and even sometimes passed their jobs on to their children. And that's very, very useful because they will, ultimately they are in charge. They have uh, the historical knowledge of what customers eat and drink and uh, who they're eating with and all of that. And that's very important in providing good service. And it also makes the job easier 
when you know the customer that well. Um, practice, practice, practice. It's like putting on a Broadway show 10 times a week. Mm. You know, by the time it's in its third year, uh, you have to actually deal with with uh, them being on autopilot rather than being fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's continuous coaching, continuous work. And, you know, it's the usual um, problems that, that what you see in the army is, yes, everybody will go into battle. Um, when the general says now, uh, and that's wishful thinking, when you don't have the same rules as the army because they do not have to do what you tell them. Um, They can be a little slower or they can make a mistake or they cannot show up one day or they're late or all of those various uh, things that happen every day in business life or the subway breaks down or what have you. So it's pretending or making it look easy, but it's a daily struggle. Right. It's a very, really complicated business. Um, mm-hmm. and you, so you've become a real New York guy, but uh, you know, you're Swiss, right? I am. I grew up and had my education in Switzerland. And I came to the United States at uh, age 21 to learn English. And, uh, it was one of my family traditions is when you're done with your education or with your military service, in my case, you, you have to leave and you have to experience the world somewhere else and uh, learn different cultures and learn different languages, and then you can return. Uh, nothing more boring than somebody who remains in Switzerland and never leaves, even though we do have three official languages. English is still very important and we're expected to know it. So the only difference was that I got stuck in New York. And uh, I am a New Yorker, as you say. And the great thing about being a New Yorker is that anybody can be a New Yorker. Right. Not everybody can be a Swiss. (laughs) It's it's hard to emigrate to Switzerland. You cannot get the Swiss citizenship. Right. Here, you can spend enough time and do you behave yourself, you can become American. That's wonderful. So I'm American by choice. And you came from a a very small Swiss village, right? Yes, I was born and and, and spent my first six or seven years in a small village. It was a winter sports place called Grindelwald at the foot of the Eiger Mountain. So if you're a Clint Eastwood fan, then you should watch his movie. Eiger Sanction. Eiger Sanction. Yes. Mm It's a great movie, actually. It is. Um, but the place was a little small and it was a little dark because of those big mountains. In the winter time, you barely saw the sun. And uh, there was a one, one-room schoolhouse, so my parents decided to move to Zurich for our education, my brother, my sister, and I. So uh, Zurich is a pretty big town and has really fabulous restaurants. And so I learned there. The, the basics of my trade. And there's something, there's a thread that connects here for me. This, this idea of uh, how you went to, essentially, you know, you got yourself to America and then to New York, and that it's a fairly high risk sort of thing, someone would say. And I, my, I understand you also, you know, you enjoy things like skydiving and scuba diving and skiing fast. And there's a this um, sort of this idea of r- this risk thread runs through this. Is that, is, am I, does that make sense? It does make sense. Um, I never thought of remaining in the United States. So when I, when I came here, it was strictly a learning trip. And then I did actually go back and work a year in Holland. And everything after New York seemed boring to me. So coming back was the second time was easier. Um, what What is difficult is when you come to a country and you don't really speak the language well and you don't have any friends and you leave all your friends behind. That I think is the challenge of an immigrant. 
And it's no wonder that many of them stick to each other and never actually learn the language of their country. And that's not good. So I was the opposite. I wanted to learn to speak English without an accent. And that takes time and it takes practice. And it's tedious. It's really tedious. It reminds me of a story of our chef at the time. He was Swiss too. And um, he would have the same breakfast every day in a coffee shop. And when somebody asked him why he orders always the same breakfast, he said he didn't know the words for the other things he liked. Oh, yes. <laughs> so instead of learning yes. it, he just had the same breakfast. I, know. <laughs> I, I, I lived in France for a while. I, I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But so you know the feeling of stepping I, up to a deli counter in Queens and, um, <laughs> uh, with a number in hand, you practice the senses. Right, you right, right. You <laughs> I, the last time I, I was in Paris with my wife and I, I hadn't spoken French in a number of years and I thought I had done this fantastic job of ordering us breakfast. And um, mm -hmm. we're, we're in this uh, brasserie, and what shows up with two but two pieces of apple pie, and I, <laughs> I thought, well, I guess I didn't get it right. <laughs> well, that happens. It just happens. It's just, yeah, you used to for, it. For me, it was uh, for me it was a, a, a Jewish uh, a deli. And I went there and and I ordered some, uh, I asked for a quarter pound of smoked salmon. And the man behind the counter, he says, oh, you mean Nova? I said, uh, well, I mean smoked salmon. He says, well, then you need, then you want Nova. Here, this is Nova. I said, okay, I'll have that. And then he said, how many bagels? I had no clue what a bagel was. But he told me that you cannot have Nova without a bagel. So you get two bagels. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you're dialed in, you right? Learn. So the next time it's just yeah, like, uh, hey man, Nova and Bagel. <laughs> <You're> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. But talk to me about this idea, though, of the, the, the skydiving and the scuba diving and this, this embrace mm. of, of essentially scary things. What, what does that do for you? Uh, well, I, I do believe I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie and, and I like new things and I like dangerous things. And I always wanted to explore my fears. And I always thought that if I'm afraid of something, I at least have to get to know what the fear is about. And with skydiving, it was definitely the fear of heights. And uh, I went up there. I wasn't old enough to drive, but I was old enough to jump, and my mom, God bless her soul, she drove me to the airport for my first parachute jump. And what I realized is when you go up to um, the heights that you jump from in, in Switzerland, is 650 uh, meters, uh, so uh, about 2,000 feet, I think. Yeah, about 2,000 mm -hmm. feet. Um, the Earth looks like a map right there is no no dimension uh um so that you you don't get uh fear of height in an airplane and so it's very easy to jump out and once you're committed and you're hanging on your chute then as you come closer to buildings or trees or fields then the fear of height kicks in but then you have to focus on the landing and you forget all about it does, so it's does, that kind of learning that I that I was after, and uh, yeah. I really enjoyed it. And still, I, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I I did it uh, again at age sixty-five. I met the uh, the instructor of the West Point skydive team, Tom Koldnitz, and he asked me if I, if he could take me up there again. And I said, sure, let's try. Maybe you'll feel different than when I was 17. And it was my first tandem jump. That didn't exist when I was growing up. And so he was strapped to my back and we had a 
very long jump. We we went up to 12,000 feet and jumped down, and I enjoyed every second of it. And with the adult mind and the meditation trained mind, it was fabulously enjoying enjoyable. I'm I'm wondering something about um, this idea of. Uh, what you said about embracing the fear or, le or learning from the fear, um, how that- We're exploring the fear. Right, right. It's um, not about, it's not about um, killing yourself. It's about seeing what, what are you really afraid of? What am I really afraid of? Right. And then once, once you know what, what it is, then you appreciate the fear as keeping you safe on some level, but it may be with a mind that's much younger or still a child's mind or the adult mind that says, you know, when you go scuba diving, you're no longer on top of the food chain. So it's a very valid <laughs> right. fear. Right. Right. Uh, I don't like being in the middle of the food chain. <laughs> I've walked in, I've walked in Tanzania and I know what that feels like. It's, it's a very alive experience. Exactly, exactly. But I think it's very important that you realize it's an alive experience. Yes. And when you look around uh, in your daily life, there are a lot of people that are seemingly alive physically, but they are dead uh, in their minds or in their emotions. And so the minute you're putting yourself in a situation where you actually have to worry about your life, you're alive, you're awake. And that's a very good experience. And it's very important to cultivate that on some level. I, I think so. I think that um, it's one of the things that, you know, as we've, you know, human beings we've developed, but we, uh, we have, they're very, for most people, there are very few occasions in their day-to-day -day life that are, actually life life-threatening um, but we're wired you know to to be um, you know like once in in that sort of a situation something switches on and it's it's a really different experience uh, and, mm -hmm. I, and I and I think it would um, I, I think it's a good idea as uh, I, I spoke to an interesting gentleman earlier this week Ken Friedman about um, he's the first guy to motorcycle in the center of Antarctica. And mm -hmm. he was saying that uh, um, life is very short, but death is very, very long. So we need to pack as much into the life mm -hmm. part and feel as alive as possible, as much as, as often mm -hmm. as possible. This sort of reminds me of that. Yes, absolutely true. And, and you're right. We're, most of the time we are not in, in, in danger, um, but it's, it's that we're afraid of what we imagine. And most people, as they get older, uh, whatever scares them, they try to avoid. Right. And when you do that, your life shrinks. Absolutely. And, and uh, I knew of a gentleman who, who was in his 80s in Germany, and uh, he was one in one of my men's weekends. And... Uh, he had two daughters and a wife, and his wife died, and he closed her room off. And then his daughter died, and he closed her room off. So it always reminds me of that's one way of dealing with it, but that's not living. Exactly. And on that weekend, he he looked deeply inside and what he was looking for what what the purpose of his life was now and what he was always missing in life was his father's approval his mm. father's blessing in a way and so i asked him to experience that and 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 role play and what he discovered is that he can be that man now. He can be that father to younger men, to see them, to bless them, to encourage them. And it was a wonderful transformation of this man who closed off these rooms in his life and, and instead open all the windows and all the doors and be somebody to look up to by younger men. 
Let's, um, I, I wanna hear about, you, you mentioned these men's workshops and I know that um, this is something you've been active in for a while. Um, tell us a little bit about these. Mm -hmm. um, I think like most of us in my early 40s, I was torn into different directions. Uh, my wife was telling me that I didn't spend enough time at home with the family and my boss told me I didn't spend enough time at work. And so it felt like a, a tug of war. And a friend of mine told me about this Mankind Project weekend uh, where I could look at in, and be safe with um, talking about the things in my life that don't work and the things that do work. And uh, I was lucky to go there at age 43 and it opened up so many avenues for me. Um, in terms of uh, allocation of time and and the illusion of multitasking and yoga and meditation and being uh, somebody who can help other people uh, in spite of all my time commitments. Instead of just having home and work, then I had also this men's organization that I was active in and started to build another life outside the restaurant in terms of yoga. So um, it was a very good thing and it, it still runs. It, it, it's in many, many cities. Um, and uh, we graduated something like 60,000 men in the last 20 years. And it's a very positive uh, thing to have this kind of initiation for men because it makes their families better, it makes themselves better, makes their workplace better. Alex, what's the name of the organization? It's called the Mankind Project. Mm -hmm. You can find it under mkp.org. And is that where you started doing yoga? Mm-hmm. First time I did yoga was on one of these weekends where one of the leaders said, anybody wants to join me for yoga tomorrow morning, come and do it. And I had no no clue what was what yoga was all about. And uh, he did some Himalaya, Himalayan yoga rites, which is maybe a total of six poses, and that was the warm up. And um, it gave me an opportunity to try something new. I had bad knees from playing squash too often and too competitively. And I found something that I could do with my bum knees. And uh, what I didn't count on was that uh, frequent yoga practice really affects someone's mind in a good way. Uh, you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about your mind. And you're, um, you're I, I mean, there's a picture of you that you sent me uh, in the mm. four seasons. There are a couple of them. There's one of you in tree pose where you're next to the pool or in the pool, I think. I'm on top of the pool. Oh, you're on, on the edge of the you're pool. You're on the edge of the pool, yes. yes. <laughs> With your suit and tie, which is wonderful. Um, and then there's a <laughs> there's a fantastic one of you on your head, not yes. on your arm, not doing a handstand or a headstand. You're on your head, um, upside down against the wall <laughs> yes. in the Four Seasons. Um, yes. I, I think this is, it It just, it's such um. You're such a unique individual, Alex, that someone who can like deal with that sort of business, with those sorts of people, and still uh, and, and practice yoga um, and seem to have a really good time at it. I think that's remarkable. It's lovely. Yes. The, the reason I send you the picture on the pool where I'm actually falling out of a pose, that was a reject picture of Yoga Journal. Um, my friend Philip Moffat, who teaches meditation in, in uh, San Francisco, uh, was asked if by Yoga Journal, if there's anybody in business that practices yoga. And he says, well, there are many people, but um, I have a friend who runs a famous restaurant and does yoga. So that's how Yoga Journal found me. And they said, would you, would you tell us what yoga means to your business? And, and I said, yes, I'm happy to. And what it means to me and my business was about 
to bringing yoga to work, the flexibility, not just of body, but also of mind, uh, the strength and the balance that yoga uh, engenders um, through practice. And they wanted to have a picture of me doing a pose in the restaurant. And I brought my yoga clothes and uh, this wonderful photographer had me in many different uh, situations, different parts of the restaurant in different poses. And I just thought it was very boring. Here's another other middle-aged guy in yoga clothes doing a pose. <laughs> I said, why don't we do it with my work clothes on? Right. And he said, they're, not, they're never going to print that. I said, no, I have a feeling they're going to print that because it is different. Right. So he asked me to, to take a pose that I could hold for a long time. Um, and I thought a long time was 30 seconds. And so I picked tree pose and I stood on the edge of the pool with the water behind me. And it, t- it took a long time to shoot this pose properly by him. And I fell out time after time again. And I just <laughs> was laughing all the time. <laughs> and so it reminds me that uh, when when I fall in life, when I make mistakes or when uh, my business closes, as it did last year, or actually feels like last year was this year, uh, there's, you just get up again. I just get up again. It doesn't matter. And I can have fun with that too. And the standing on the head is very simply practice uh, in a world that seems upside down all the time. And if you stand on your head, then you're right in sync with the world. And if you can hold it for a while, it's a good thing for your body and uh, your psyche. Mm. Um, and you sent there, there was another photo that you sent me in that package um, where y- your face is very colorfully painted. You have a big <laughs> grin on your face. <laughs> I'm thinking, I know it. This is not very Swiss. What? What is happening here? <laughs> Maybe that's why I have to leave the country. See? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Um, no, I think there are many adventurous Swiss, and I'm just one of them. Um, what What you're looking at is a, a picture I have never shared with anyone uh, outside my friends and family. It's a picture of me completing a vision quest in the desert of. Um, New Mexico. I was invited by some Apache women to do a one-week uh, vision quest, which means I spend time by myself with a tent and a sleeping bag and uh, uh, a couple of gallons of water. And uh, they would check in with me every day and bring me a little food. And they gave me some tasks. And it was about... Uh, doing a complete life review um, and all the good things and all the bad things and all the things I learned from, that, from, from those moments and then uh, uh, endeavor to vision in my dreams what the next steps might be. And as a matter of fact, I just remember I drew in my journal as the next step um, uh, jumping from one bar of the trapeze to a catcher's arms. And there's that moment where you let go of the trapeze bar and you're in free fall. Right. And you either fly into the net or you timed it right and the catcher timed it right and you get, you get caught. And I think anybody entrepreneurial can use that to let go of something that served a long time, like a long-standing business or an idea or a relationship, uh, in order to let go, you have to actually uh, be without the safety for a while. And that was the message I had in that vision quest. And uh, also that I wasn't done with the restaurant. So I built another one. And. One of the things that we spoke about earlier was this idea of um, sort of related to this, this uh, lucid dreaming um, Mm -hmm. that 
you find very helpful for these things. What, what, is, what does that look like for you? So lucid dreaming is, is a capacity we all have. It's to uh, wake up or to communicate with that part of the brain that at some point accidentally uh, observes your dream. It's the part that says, oh, I'm dreaming right now. Sometimes it's a nightmare and sometimes it's a wonderful dream. Um, but most of us do not know the technique to communicate with that part of the brain. I don't know what to call that part of the brain. You know, maybe, maybe it's the soul part. It's not, um, I don't know. You know, it's a little like when they say that uh, think with your heart. Well, we thought for a long time that anatomically that wasn't possible. But it's a little different now because the, even the heart and the knees have memories. So uh, there's a technique called lucid dreaming and you put yourself in the, the right mental space as you go to sleep. And then when you wake up, um, when you wake up naturally without an alarm clock, um, in that last phase of deep sleep, you will have wonderful dreams. And if you do not move as you open your eyes, if you do not move physically, and if you do not immediately think of your to-do list, then you just might connect with the dream in a way that is helpful, in a way that tells you something that you've been trying to figure out and you couldn't get answers because the mind is usually just too distracted. So that's called either yogic dreaming or lucid dreaming. And mm -hmm. fairly easy to learn, but it's difficult to practice. Mm -hmm. D difficult to practice because one wants to immediately grab one's phone and that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Right. It's, the, it's a temptation to say when you, when you catch that part of your brain, uh, it's human hubris to say, oh, I got it. And the minute you say that, it's gone. So it, it's a very quiet observing of what's happening. Right. Right. And, and uh, you, cannot, you cannot force it. And most of us are used to, to uh, succeeding by pushing forward, by pushing through obstacles, obstacles by pushing through, through other people. Um, and you can't do that with yogic dreams. It's very subtle. But yes, I... when it happens, it's glorious and you get very clear instructions what, what's next. And obviously it comes from some part of your brain. Um, the part that uh, is only available in, in the twilight zone. It's between, between sleep state and the wake state. Once you're fully awake, it's gone. And exactly. once you're fully asleep, it's gone. Right. Right. I, I, I find that um, I, I, I don't really practice it, but I just, I, I, I wake up and then I just don't really do anything. I just lie there. Um, mm -hmm. And then, then it's, it seems as though um, it, like answers to questions just come to me. Um, yeah. Or, and I, I didn't even know that they were questions until the answers. <laughs> I think, oh, there was a question. Right. I, I can answer that now. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, or, or as it happens with me, I say, oh no, no, that's not the answer. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's. I think that's rebellious, lucid thinking. <laughs> that's right. Different, different level, Alex. <laughs> yes. But it's important to be honest about it. You know, yes. there, there are no magic solutions, but there's incremental practice. Right. And the more we expose ourselves to these learnings, the more um, useful it becomes. And I, I really wish that we would teach these things in school. It's all good to add numbers or to learn languages or to 
to become the scientist, but it's equally important to learn what's going on in our interior. And uh, I, for one, was never encouraged to do that. And I think most school curricula are not uh, equipped to do that. I think for most people, including students, we're, we get seduced by this um, sort of theater of activity. Um, you know, where we're supposed to be like mm -hmm. doing, doing, doing all the time and you know, mm -hmm. making, placing values on ourselves by how much, how much doing is happening. Not so much by how much is accomplishing, but more like how much, how much activity is being put out. And I, I don't think that's such a great that's metric. Right. Yeah. No, it isn't. And, and uh, I also think it's a question of age. Yes. I think we have to mature into that and slow down. Yes. And um, I, I was telling you that my knees were messed up by my competitive um, squash playing. I just decided to go back to play squash because uh -huh. I love it as, a, as an exercise. Yes. And wouldn't you know, you know, I really talked about I'm going to play softly and I'm going to play age appropriately. Uh -huh. And wouldn't you know, the third time I went, I couldn't walk for a week. So <laughs> yes. It was right, it was right back. Yeah. <laughs> somebody, somebody asked me, they said, well, um, I don't ride my bicycle in the city anymore. And I, when I was living in Manhattan, I would think nothing of riding my bike down the center of Broadway. Like, you know, mm -hmm. with the traffic, mm -hmm. totally fine. No problem. But I, I, what I told the person was the, um, the scale of my ambition has not diminished. What's diminished are my reflexes. And so <laughs> I'm going to get myself right. in a lot of trouble if I do that. So I choose to just not do that. Yeah. Yeah. But see, this is exactly what um, the body eventually uh, uh, wins out. And if we're mature enough and, and practiced enough, we can accept that. And we can say, okay. I want to play today so that I can play tomorrow. Right. Not that I can't walk for a week. <laughs> so it, 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 it is my body saying, no, you're too old for this. You've got to do this differently. Right. We need to recalibrate, so you're doing Alex. it differently. Right. That's right. That's right. You know, what was very helpful to me about the doing and the, the list and all that was a meditation. I don't know where it comes from, but... Uh, the meditation is first I do nothing and then I rest a while. That's it. First I do nothing and then I rest I love a while. That. And um, what it encourages me to do is not do for doing sake and also right. not rest up for going crazy again. Right. So I, I love that about aging. If you pay attention, if I pay attention. I, you know, we talk about meditation. I, I started meditating not that long ago, like maybe six or seven years ago. Um, after mm -hmm. like 30 years of failing at it, I finally just mm -hmm. got an app and I, now I do it every day. It's, I can't imagine not doing it. And I, but what we, we did a little study back um, a while ago and we wanted to find out how many people actually meditate? Because I was, it was coming up, I would have conversations with people, the interviews with people, and they would say, oh, in my meditation, so you meditate? And I, I just thought it was like an anomaly. But uh, what we found is the, the, like by far and away, the majority of people, um, the ageist people that we spoke to meditate. And I, I find that like just shocking, but in a wonderful way. Mm -hmm. Um, it's very good. But, you know, I can't help but uh, uh, since you talked about this, I, I, I thought about it. And maybe it's also the hip thing to, to say. So that I, I'm not sure that uh, everybody that says they meditate, they actually do. And maybe that's a cynic in me. Or maybe it's like, hmm. uh, you know, the surveys they do about... Uh, uh, the sex life and marriage, you know, where everybody 
has a lot of sex, but really nothing happens <laughs> uh, throughout the country. <laughs> how 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 true is the the sample? You know, are we honest with these things? I don't know. I don't know. Actually, it's measurable because is the app that you're using uh, Headspace? Uh, I I started with that and I um mm -hmm. I got I got tired of listening to Andy's voice so <laughs> initially <laughs> he effective. offers a woman's noise voice oh you know? <laughs> well I I I use this thing now called Insight Timer and it's just a okay. it's a series of gongs uh, uh -huh. and the gongs go off like every two or three minutes I add as many gongs as I can because for me more gongs are good each time there's a gong I kind of brings me back to like, oh, right, you're stop thinking about whatever Don says, focus on your cool. career. Um, cool. You know, what, what I'm thinking of is that hmm. these apps probably can measure right. of their subscriptions, how many people stick to it and how many people mm, are at least quiet for a certain amount of time. That would be right. interesting to check that out. But anyway, I think the more people meditate, the safer the planet will become. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about restaurants and food. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, you're one of the foremost experts on this sort of thing. So I want to ask you, um, where do you like to eat? What, what makes a good restaurant for you? Mm. A good restaurant... Uh, is one that um, serves food that I want to eat at that particular time and day. And that is honest about preparations and sourcing. And uh, also where hopefully I know somebody in the restaurant. It doesn't have to be the boss, but maybe a waiter, maybe a bartender, maybe a cook, maybe the boss. Um, because every meal in my life has a purpose beyond just feeding my hunger. It may be just a friendly meal with a friend. It may be uh, an interview with somebody. It may be a business deal, maybe a celebration, a birthday, a wedding anniversary. Um, there's always something, actually even wakes uh, and bar mitzvahs and uh, everything in life uh, that can be celebrated by breaking bread with someone else. And so it has to be suitable for and suitable and appropriate for the occasion. Um, and what I mean by that is, is if I just want to have a bite to eat by myself for lunch, right. very rarely will I go to an expensive restaurant and sit by myself. Um, it's also an art to do that and enjoy yourself. So I say rarely because I, I do it sometimes. Just because I'm in a city where I don't know somebody doesn't mean I shouldn't end up with a good meal. Um, and then, of course, it's a preference. You know, sometimes I feel like uh, rich French food and sometimes I feel like a simple dish of pasta. So I will think of what do I feel like? And I think there are more, more men like me that when, you, when, when I look at a very large menu, I, I just get confused. There's either too many good dishes or there's really nothing that hits my fancy. So I love to make that decision before I go out. Hmm. I love to say, okay, I feel like Chinese food and I feel like, you know, this particular dish. I feel like some good vegetable wontons. And then I know where to find it. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the food. Um, also, I I I do love to have a good glass of wine with my meal, so that eliminates some people, some places. Mm -hmm. um, but the best is just not to know that there are no uh, surprises. Every time I see or experience a new restaurant, um, I don't know that. I'll just go in open-minded and I'll experience it and I'll make up my mind if I go back uh, based on the experience. But when I know I want the best fish in town, that's when I go to Le Bermadin, where Eric Repair 
cooks or where I hired some people from. <laughs> huh. It's a beautiful restaurant and it's beautiful fish and uh, there's no surprises. Right. Uh, even the, even the price is no surprise. It's going to be very high. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and how does service factor into that for you? Service is crucial. Mostly, you know, I think most people will forgive a so-so meal if they have great service. What I look for is somebody that really cares whether I have a good time or not. Uh, that uh, a man or a woman will serve me and actually care. And uh, the, one, of the, one of the first things I look for in a restaurant is when I call for a reservation. There are many restaurants where you can't call anymore. And I always objected to that because that's the first impression. That's when I, that's when we can shine by how we treat somebody on the phone. Right. Uh, then when we arrive, you know, is there some, is there a place to put my car? Is there somebody opening the door? Uh, are there friendly faces when I walk in? Um, the front desk, are they looking at the computer or are they looking at me? Most of the time, unfortunately, they look at the computer. Right. Um, sad. Um, that's not how you get to know people. Uh, very important that the computer is helping them not stand between me and them. That mm -hmm. um, they honor my request. Simple request. I'd like a quiet table. I'd like a table in a corner. And if they don't have it, it's very simple. Say, we have your request. Unfortunately, we don't have one. But we maybe we have a better table or we have a table just as good. Mm -hmm. Acknowledge that I made a request. Mm -hmm. um, and then a quiet place. I need quiet. My hearing is not the best anymore. I like to communicate with who I'm eating with. Mm -hmm. I am not interested in, in a, a, a DJ showing off what he can, uh, what mood he can create in, in my mind. Uh, I'm there to have a quiet meal with somebody, usually. Um, so that's all service. Mm. And, you know, there, there, there are only five moments of where service matters. One is when you first sit down, something has to happen right away. Somebody has to come and say, what would you like? Mm -hmm. The second uh, is that uh, deciding what this meal is all about. So they give me some space to catch up with my guest or they know I'm in a hurry. So gauge the table in terms of what the purpose is and how fast I need to be served. Uh, then uh, the menu and the explanations and then the order taking and then it's all in their hands to, to speedy service or slow service. And then once I'm done, you better be ready with the check. So these are the five steps. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I expect from a professional restaurant. Mm. Um, wonderful. Um, I, I, uh, I so agree with the loud. Um, I find it, especially restaurants in Manhattan, I feel like I'm screaming. Mm -hmm. I'm always like screaming at the person across the table from me. And I think, why? <laughs> why yeah, is that it necessary? Does, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, well, this is, um, Alex, this has been really wonderful. I'm, uh, you've been so gracious with your time. And um, I just, I just love the contradiction uh, of, of you with the, you know, the, the four seasons and then on, on the one hand and the other side, the, the, the yoga and the, the men's group and the lucid thinking and who combining those two is, is remarkable. I, I actually think that's mm -hmm. sort of the, the secret, right? Like you kind of can't do, I guess you could kind of do the other thing for a while, but. Um, you burn out. I think. Yeah, exactly. You have to learn how to take care of yourself. And that's really all I'm doing is I'm taking care of myself. And, uh, you know, there, uh, what comes to mind is a, a book written by um, David White, W-Y, 
T E. Um, David White was the uh, corporate uh, poet for Boeing, and Boeing, they, they need somebody now. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. He, Boeing has a corporate poet? They that's used a, that's to. A, that's a job? <laughs> Amazing. They used to. Uh, oh. Under Alan Mulally, yes. And anyway, he's a brilliant uh, writer um, from Ireland. And he wrote a book called The Three Marriages. And uh, I highly recommend it to, for all those people that think that multitasking is the answer. Um, and he dispels that in a beautifully poetic way. Wow, I'm going to check that out. Um, check it out. Wonderful. Alex, I so um, look forward to seeing you again. And um, I will see you when you're back in New York. And I thank you very much for your time and your interest. So absolutely. Let's spread the good news. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Take care. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks so much. You too. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye now. Thanks so much for listening to the Ages podcast. We'll be back next week with another great interview. You can subscribe to our much-loved newsletter at ages.com for more great stories. And you can also send us an email if you like to podcast at ages.com with your comments and questions, and we'll try and get back to you. This is David. Have a wonderful week. And a big shout-out to Seize Apart Music, who produced that great track that we're listening to in the background. Hope you all have a great week. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.